Last week, our passage established the tension between Joseph and his brothers. They can't stand him. He seems quite willing to make it worse, giving his dad bad reports about them and disclosing dreams in which they bow down to him like a king. And so they want him dead. His dad sends him out again to bring back a report on how his brothers and the flocks are doing. Turns out that they're not in the place that Jacob had sent them. However, someone there redirects Joseph to where they've gone. And you're like, uh, given we've been, you know, in Genesis for quite a while, and one of the things that you recognize about Genesis is sometimes it gives you these details that raise these huge questions, and then it doesn't, it leaves you to struggle with those questions. Here, you wonder why would you include this little story about Joseph going here, see them not being there, and then having to go there. Um, it seems like you could have just left that out. He just went, you know, just say found his brothers. Uh, it seems so unnecessary to the story. Or is it necessary to the story? Because consider what would have happened had Joseph gone off to Shechem, not found his brothers. There was no stranger there to direct him to Dothan. And you, what would he have done? You would have been like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just go home. Now, you could say, uh, well, yeah, he could eat that. He could go out another time and find his brothers and whatever. But what happens when he hoofs it in a new direction is he's wearing his his, uh, multicolored robe, his coat of long sleeves, his princess dress, whatever, however you want to translate it. And what happens when he's, this time when he comes to go to see his brothers, they see him from a long distance off and they say, here comes that dreamer, which... Again, speaks to their resentment. And then they say, let's kill him, which really speaks to their resentment. Now, Reuben is there. Reuben is the oldest brother. He realizes, look, if we kill kill this kid, that's going to be on me. I'm going to be in big trouble. So he says, "Uh, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. Okay, fine. We'll just throw him in a pit. And then Reuben figures, all right, later I'll get him out. Maybe Reuben thinks, ah, here's my opportunity to be a hero finally get some of that approval from my father that I've been looking for. Anyway, Joseph arrives, strip him of his robe, toss him into the pit. Now, if you're thinking, well, that could have happened on some other occasion that they could have done something like this. Well, it's important to realize that they throw him in the pit, Reuben steps away, and while Reuben's away, uh, some Ishmaelite uh, traitors, a caravan of Ishmaelites comes through. And uh, was it Judah? Judah says, hey, let's sell Joseph to these traitors. They're like, yes, great idea. So they sell Joseph. Then they take his, his fancy garment, they spill blood on it and present it to their dad and say, uh, and allow him to conclude that Joseph has been eaten by a wild animal. In other words, if that doesn't happen, if that conversation with that stranger uh, doesn't happen, Joseph is not redirected, this doesn't happen, the selling of Joseph to the, the caravan. And if that doesn't happen, well, then Joseph doesn't end up in Egypt. And spoiler alert, if Joseph doesn't end up in Egypt, he's not in a position to save his family from starvation. And his family, of course, is 
the house of Jacob. It is Israel. So there's no Israel. And if there's no Israel, then there's no King David. And if there's no King David, there is no uh, Jesus. Right? And if there's no Jesus, there's no Easter. And if there's no Easter, there's no new heavens and new earth. There's no eternal life. So think again about this seemingly tangential conversation. Just sort of like, hey, can I help you, pretty boy? Yeah, I'm looking for my brothers. Uh, I saw a real surly bunch of fellows around here not too long ago. How many of them? Well, ten. That's them. Well, they gone. Oh, shoot. Yeah, don't get your multicolored princess dress with long sleeves and a bunch. I overheard where they went. They went off to Dothan. That conversation right there is one of the most important conversations in human history, right? The fate of the universe depends on that conversation. Let that be a little lesson to you. I mean, you have no idea what the consequences of your actions might be. Just some common decency on the part of this stranger changed our lives forever. I mean, sometimes you do know when you are in the midst of a big moment. Sometimes you only know in retrospect. Sometimes you'll never know. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's not our story yet. Joseph is still in the thick of it. He is sold into slavery and uh, in Egypt. And so that's where we pick up. Chapter 39. All right. Jen told me don't read like this. Okay. One of those notes she gives me. All right. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him from there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he was put in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care, in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though, he sp though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has, a, has been brought to us to make sport of us. 
He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Her... Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave he brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those he had held in prison. And he was made responsible for all that, he, that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So I heard uh, this, a prominent preacher uh, preach on this passage saying in his introduction that he would show us just how relevant this ancient story was to modern life. And after that, he went through the four, the four elements of strong temptation and then he revealed the five subpoints of Joseph's resistance and, and then he said this, he said, you want to end your days separated from your wife, separated from your kids, living, in, living over in some lousy apartment somewhere? Well, gee, the obvious answer there is no. Well, then we need to follow Joseph's example. But I wonder, is that really, is that, is that what the story's about? I'm, I'm not discounting the wisdom of the four elements and five subpoints. All that was, was solid advice. That's not my point. I just question whether that's why the ancients preserved this story. It's a way of illustrating some good advice. Because one problem with that is this. Things don't turn out so great for Joseph. Here we are told uh, to follow Joseph's example if we don't want to end up miserable. Well, Nobody follows Joseph's example better than Joseph. And he ends up in a pretty miserable position. He would envy your lousy apartment somewhere. See, I don't really care about Joseph as a moral example. I'm interested in Joseph as a human being. And, and let's face it, based on what we read last week, he's not a particularly likable human being. Mr. Fancy Pants, rubbing his favored son status in the face of his brothers. I mean, even in his dreams, he's full of himself. And here's one thing I know about people who are full of themselves. They're not real great at resisting temptation. They're great at assuming they're entitled to anything they want, especially when they feel like they've been wronged. And Joseph was wronged. Um, you know, he may have been a jerk, but even if your brother's a total jerk, you don't sell him into slavery. There's a little bit of advice for you. And Joseph was. He was wronged. He was owed. And here's something else I know about people. 
When they feel owed, when they feel shortchanged, their basic instincts, their primal drives tend to get a little louder. For instance, their sex drive. Uh, in the 90s, there were all these programs that attempted to get teenagers to stop from having premarital sex. And most of them would end with some ceremony of some type in which you would, you know, you would give your, you would be given a promise ring or a bracelet or some hip waders. I don't know. There's lots of varieties of things. And that was supposed to help you remember that you were going to stay pure. Well, research has shown that those programs eh, don't work so great. I think they said on average, if you've been through something like that, uh, you were a virgin maybe two months longer than people who didn't. Now, I say this as somebody who did manage to uh, remain a virgin until marriage, uh, but I don't take a lot of credit for that because I think all of us are born with sort of a void in our chest, a need to be loved. And when you're surrounded by people who mistreat you, that void just becomes bigger. But if people love you, it starts to fill that void a bit. And I am profoundly grateful for all the people in my life growing up who helped fill that void. Uh, if they hadn't, I, I had no doubt would have been more determined to fill up myself in some sort of way, whether it was sex or whatever. Sex would have been in my ear going, here, here, use me. I'll fill that void. So the question is, how does Jacob do it? Or Joseph, how does Joseph resist? Uh, Frederick Beekner, he wrote a novel called Son of Laughter, which is basically the story about Joseph. And what it does is it presents Potiphar's wife as you know, twice Joseph's age and twice Joseph's weight. And so he's sort of, on, you know, he's repulsed and that's how he resists. Um, but if you were to do a Google search, an image search of depictions of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, most of them don't go that angle. Most of them assume she's attractive. But regardless, he refuses her. He does not use sex to fill the void. What he says is this. It's basically, you know, sleeping with you is not going to fill any void. On the contrary, it poses a threat to what fills the void. Let's recall what filled the void before being sold into slavery for, for Joseph. Before being sold into slavery, what filled the void for him was the adulation of his father, right? I mean, again, we're told last week that he ratted out his brothers to his father. Uh, and these, these brothers, they've got murder raps, right? They, they, these are bad dudes. But he doesn't care. It's more important to him that he has his father's approval uh, than that he puts himself in danger. Maybe he's oblivious to what that'll do because he's so concerned about uh, taking in his father's approval. The problem is, it is, of course, his commitment to having his father fill that void. That is his undoing, right? Because as he's doing that, he's, there's this resentment towards him that's growing in his brothers. So much so that his brothers 
sell him like some old sofa at a yard sale, right? It just, just happens to be, hey, look, there's some people passing by. Maybe they'll buy our brother off us. So the, the kid who thought he would reign over his family like some sort of king, oh, look where you are now, a slave of strangers. His own arrogance had cut him off from everything that had once filled the void. Safe to assume that when he's in that position, when he's being led away by that caravan, uh, he's got a bit of a crisis to deal with. And that this, this crisis changes him. In fact, you can see elements here of what is often uh, a component of a conversion experience. Your sources of security, your sense of value are all gone, and all you have is that void sitting in the middle of your chest. In AA circles, that's referred to as hitting rock bottom. And as the, as the first of the 12 steps states, he has to admit his own powerlessness. That is, life has become unmanageable. All the things he used to look to are gone. And so it is at that point, it seems as though he was open to the second of the 12 steps, which is to hand your, turn your will and your life over to a higher power. Now, no doubt, landing in the house of Potiphar came as somewhat of a relief, a sign that even as he was cut off from his father, his father's God still watched over him. The bonds of that covenant were not broken. The approval that he had sought from his father, he now seeks from this God, right? Uh, and he recognizes that giving in to the advances of uh, Potiphar's wife would undermine that. I mean, that's what he says. How could I sin against God? How could I do this thing that violates what has been, has filled this void? Now, I think it's fair to say that this move on Joseph's part uh, illustrates some of the things that like Freud would say about God. I mean, he would, Freud would say, well, you know, God is simply a projection of our own needs. Our attempt to compensate for the failings and the limitations of our biological parents. So, so we put those up in the sky. And Let's be honest, I mean, it's not just uh, God that is filling that void, uh, it is Potiphar. Potiphar supplies Joseph with another uh, father figure. Because in some ways he's doing with Potiphar the same things that he did at home. He's filling the void with the approval of these substitute fathers. You know, uh, I think we can acknowledge that. Uh, we don't have to say that that necessarily means that God doesn't actually exist. And we might also want to say, listen, Freud, you've got that, you must have that void. How are you filling it, all right? Um, maybe he filled it by diagnosing people. Then we went, well, how's that working out for you there, Sigmund? Because the fact is, if you know anything about Sigmund Freud, uh, he also supplemented that with opium and, and prostitutes. So, you know, take a look in the mirror, pal. You got, your, <laughs> you got some work to do. Um, there, there's this... And it's, it, it's this 
the fact that Joseph has found something that's filled his void, that is what enables him to resist temptation. Uh, there's this perception, I think, out there that the way to resist temptation is willpower. But research has shown willpower is pretty limited. It's like a, a muscle, and eventually it gives out. You can't continue to dwell on something you desire and resist it forever. Eventually you're gonna break. Just, it's the way it works. There's that famous experiment where they would uh, leave a kid, put a marshmallow in front of a kid and then leave the room and say, hey look, uh, don't eat this. If you don't eat this when I come back, you can have like three marshmallows or whatever. Uh, and it was supposed to be this study that said, oh, some kids have willpower. Some kids are able to delay gratification. No. That's not what that study revealed. They've looked at it a little more closely. What it revealed is, it's not that some kids have greater willpower. It's, it's not that some had some innate sense of delayed gratification. No, it's that some were able to occupy their minds with other things, right? Uh, they didn't just, you know, the kids who stared at the marshmallow and said, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. They ate it. But the kids who climbed under the table and played a little game by themselves or sang songs around the room and just ignored the marshmallow, they did it. You know, so it's not, you don't fight, fight the temptation. No, you occupy, you reframe the whole situation. You look at it differently. Well, Potiphar's wife, no offense, Potiphar's wife, is the marshmallow here. And, he, and Joseph does not respond by saying, I must fight my primal urges. No, he reframed that whole experience so that she is not a temptation. She is a threat. She's not an opportunity to fill some void. She threatens to hollow him out. He'd lose everything he had worked to achieve. Now, here's the thing. Even though that's what he does, he still loses everything. Uh, he's jailed. Uh, he's put in a position where, wow, boy, I envy those slaves. So having refused to sin against God, he no doubt felt betrayed. The void in him opened up again. But hey, turns out there's a, there's a warden, there's a jailer, another father figure. And Joseph begins again to gain approval. And God again blesses the work that Joseph does. Sure, it's not the same as uh, ruling in the house of Potiphar, but it's enough. It's enough. It's enough to, that, to convince Joseph, my story is not over. It's enough that gives him some solid footing again. Which in a way kind of brings us back to that stranger in Shechem. No idea of the consequences of that conversation how that conversation would set things in motion. The same is true of Potiphar's wife. She appears to throw Joseph's whole story off track, throw it into the ditch. But that's only how it appears because as it turns out, the ultimate outcome of the story hinges on Joseph going to jail, as we shall see. You know, and that is, that's important to remember. 
I mean, the story I heard, the sermon I heard was correct. There are benefits to being faithful, to overcoming temptation, and there are consequences to being faithless, to succumbing to temptation. But there is no guarantee that those benefits will be there. Jesus will, in fact, claim that persecution is a mark of faithfulness. I mean, if you're being persecuted, well, good for you. You must be doing something right. In the end, being faithful, is, it's more than just following a series of steps. Ultimately, we have to move beyond seeing faithfulness as a way to achieve some outcome, some reward. Ultimately, being faithful is its own reward. Because it's not what we do or what we don't do that determines our fate. Part of being faithful is recognizing, recognizing that God holds our fate. That the ultimate outcome of our story is in God's hands. And in Christ, that is what we see, is our ultimate fate being played out in the story of Easter. We are seeing our story. In Jesus Christ, God enters the void, not just some metaphorical void, but the ultimate void of death. And in Christ, that void has been filled and to overflowing with life, everlasting life. And that is why we strive to be faithful. That is why we strive to resist temptation, to doing what is just and what is good, what is loving not to achieve some outcome, but because we already know how this story ends. That your story, my story, is tied to Christ's story. It is and will be an Easter story. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.